The date is set. Trump may be in front of a jury as early as mid-August. We'll discuss what that means for the former president as well as for the election. Then Hunter Biden pled guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges. We'll put his case in context and help you discuss it with family. We'll also discuss yet another lapse of Supreme Court ethics, this time involving Justice Alito. Finally, we'll discuss a little noticed Montana case that pits the state's youth against powerful political leaders. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason, it looks like, you know, Aileen Cannon, not exactly sure what's going on here, but I think August 14th, she set a preliminary date for the trial. Now, you were the trial lawyer, and I know this is a criminal case, which is not your expertise. Does this mean anything, or is this thing going to be pushed back? Uh, I mean, it can easily be pushed back, but once you have the date of like when it is supposed to start, everything gets measured against that, right? So like mm -hmm. you can do a continuance, you can do all that, but it is all continuing from that date. Uh, and I don't know, man. I mean, Trump makes everything so focused on his politics. Like, I think it's hard to tell whether or not, I mean, in a typical criminal case like this, you would think that the criminal defendant would probably not be in a hurry. They'd want to make sure that they uh, you know, get an opportunity, particularly like when they're not in jail, right? Right. That they, they'd want every opportunity to prepare their defense. But with Trump, like his defense is so often in the court of public opinion rather than right. the court of law. And he's, he just, they may be thinking, or he may be thinking, well, my date that I care about is November of 2024. So let's right. get this, whatever it's going to be behind us, especially knowing that if he gets convicted, it's going to be strung out in appeals for a long time anyway. Right. So well, let's, I think it could actually start then. Let's do the unthinkable. And Jason, pretend that you're in Trump's legal camp and political okay. camp because the same, they're the same camp, right? You're a political yeah, yeah, strategist yeah. and you know general counsel to the Trump campaign and Trump's uh, main criminal defense attorney. You have a lot of hats here, uh, mm -hmm. in addition to being a podcast right. host. The, <laughs> let me give you two scenarios here. You tell me which is better. Based on the probabilities. Okay. One is he he tries to run out the clock for the election. We already talked about that one last week. I have a new one, which is with this early date, it's a Florida jury. Doesn't matter how strong the charges are. We live in a polarized America. The chances of him getting one person to not convict is get a hung jury. That would be great politically for him to be like, see, mm -hmm. I'm innocent. I'm which exonerated. of these two are you fighting? Yeah, which of these two are you are you pushing for? Quick trial, okay, get so a hung jury, or run out the clock. In this case, I'm his lawyer and his political advisor, right? Yeah, yeah. So in, in that case, what I would say is I would say, look, there's a small chance that you get acquitted. That'd be great. But if we do this now, knowing that we can string the appeals process out, we can make, if, if you're not acquitted, if you are convicted, which is more likely, then we can make this, I feel so, uh, this is gross. I'm going to need a shower after this podcast. But uh, I, I would say to him, if I were in that role, I would say, we can make the American public feel like this was just the beginning part of the process. So like you can right. get convicted and then we can be like, we're appealing it. There's no way this stands up on appeal. Mm -hmm. And we can act like, you know, and as soon as we get uh, an appellate court to accept the case, you just go out and talk about that like they've exonerated you because a lot of your people aren't going to know the difference. Like, so if you're combining the two, that's probably what you do. I'm I starting. Think. I'm starting to think quick trial is in Trump's interest here. I know this is a zag, but I'm thinking about this jury, and maybe it's I'm being cynical about how polarized we are, and the fact that you just need one of twelve people in this America in Florida 
to not go along with this case, like, I think those chances are pretty high. And that's like it, a really good scenario for Trump. You know, if he gets also, well, the now the other side of that is that a quick trial means that they get to move on to the other cases quicker mm-hmm. and he gets he gets hit with those quicker. But, you know, I guess it means that the most in a lot of ways, probably the most crucial part of this trial is going to be Vordire. It's going to be uh, jury selection, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's I, boy, how do you find? an impartial jury on the subject of Donald Trump anywhere it's impossible. in America. This thing is impossible. Absolutely impossible. Yeah. And that's where, like, I think the venue, you know, remember, like, the OJ trial, the fact that they held it downtown was actually critical. Mm-hmm. The fact that this is in Florida is so important. You know, the yeah. fact that this is in Miami. I do think that, yeah, man, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's like, this is going to be very fascinating to see if it is, in fact, that fast, you know? Uh, yeah, I just like I don't know how you. They're gonna have to have a standard for jury selection of impartiality that is that departs from your regular standard, right? I mean, this is literally like where you can you can look at people. I, I don't even know. Like everybody's gonna have an opinion on him. He was president. Yeah, and I do you know? think you probably have to sequester the jury. I would imagine. I would. Yes. Hope. Uh, yeah, and. and and not only like yeah, you have probably sequester the jury. Now I don't know how long the trial is going to be, right? But like you have to sequester the jury, and then on top of that, it's like literally, I, I don't even know if you can ask this, but like everybody, the chances are that the people who end up on that jury probably they're they're registered voters. Yeah, they which probably is totally voted. You, could, you don't. Yeah, at you some can tell point it. they've rendered a judgment on this person. Yeah, that's the problem. You almost want. If you're, if you're the prosecutors, your best you're not going to get Democrats on that jury, probably, right? So your best case is people who've never voted in their lives. Which, how many of those people are in a jury pool? Because it is the registered voters, I think, that get you on the jury pool. So that's registered the, that's voters, the rumor. you never really know if that's yeah. real. But that's that's that it's it's a it's a it's a thing that's out there, and unfortunately, it sometimes keeps people from registering to vote. Um, yeah. But. Clearly, there's a cross section, and not only that, like your jury pool is also the people who answer the jury summons. So yeah. the chance that they are the civically minded yeah, folks answer, anyway never vote. It's so crazy. Yeah, they're they're, uh, they're voters usually. What a mess! Honestly, what a mess! Uh, yeah, uh, I almost so, think we should move this trial to Iceland or something to another country where people <laughs> haven't voted in this election. We but the thing is, is like that's mind. probably for Trump. Is there a place other? Uh, what? Let's see, like Turkey. Uh, Russia. There's not many venues around the world internationally. Yeah, but but North Korea. <laughs> North. We talk about a sequestered jury. They yeah. will have no information whatsoever, <laughs> actually, other than what the judge gives them. The problem is, there's documents about North Korea here, so we'd have to. We'd have. There, to there you go. The jury, now, like, now you got to redact. Yeah. It's going to have to be nothing but North Korean uh, high-ranking military officers who have the uh, who have the clearance to see these documents. Yeah. Right. No, there's no easy way to do this. Oh God, kill me now. All right. So. Uh, Trump himself, he went on Brett Baer's program. Now, look, I don't know <laughs> what to say about this, but Brett Baer somehow turned into Jake Tapper overnight in this interview. I, I don't know what else to say. He was very prepared. He held Trump accountable. You and I were talking offline, like, what the heck is going on at Fox News? I think this is a big question. 
I'm here for it right now. I certainly mm-hmm. don't have high hopes, but at least this interview, two-day interview, I guess, was very hard-hitting. Uh, we're going to go through some of these clips. Let's start with this, <laughs> this back and forth over Trump's cabinet. This is actually a very, I, again, I know our listeners are going to love me shouting out Fox News, but this was a very well-delivered question. Uh, let's go to this clip. Mm-hmm. In 2016, you said that. I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. Well, I did do that. This and we time, had tremendous look. We had the best economy we've ever had. This the world time has ever seen. Your vice president, Mike Pence, is running against you. Yeah. Your ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned National Security Advisor John Bolton. He's not supporting you either. You mentioned Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, says you shouldn't be president again. Uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called and uh, Barr a, a gutless pig. Uh, you're second defense secretary is not supporting you, called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House chief of staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock. And your first defense secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House press secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milquetoast. And multiple times, you've referred to your transportation secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China loving wife. So why did you hire all of them in the first place? Because I hired 10 to 1 that were fantastic. We had a great economy. We had phenomenal people in charge of the economy. We had phenomenal people in the military. I'm not a fan of Millie, and I'm not a fan of certain of the television people. But I knocked out ISIS. I defeated ISIS. They said, Mattis, it would take three years, and I don't think we can do it. I did it in a period of, like, four weeks. There's a lot of people knocked- who praise you for your policies. That's I just said true. that. That's true. Well, I mean, you just went through a list. But don't forget, for everyone you say, I had 10 that love us. Okay. Uh, a couple of things about this. One, great job by Bear, because what he didn't do is he didn't ask the follow-up question that Trump was inviting, which was, well, name some of the people who... Right. You know, because Trump would have just he would have either not rattled off anybody and just acted like there were tons like he did or he would have, you know, it lets him out of it. And so it was smart the way he did it. But then also, look, man, as a politician, you got to hand it to Trump. You could see Trump. I mean, only for his political skill, but you can see before he even asked the question, Trump is already pivoting into his remember how great the economy was when I was president, which is not right, but whatever, into that talking point. And then they ask the question, and it is a devastating buildup and actual question. And Trump just completely just waves it off, doesn't accept the premise, and goes quickly into having the viewer forget what the question was and goes back to talking about what he wanted to talk about. So they were kind of both at the top of their game there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess what it, what it means know? for Trump to be at the top of his game is always fascinating to me. It's just but- to keep saying the same BS he always says. Um, but the other thing, for those who listened and didn't see it, Fox, like, they were they were playing the images of Trump patting each of those people that was mentioned on the back, shaking their hand, like clearly Trump, you know, trust transferring onto each of those people who they were then laying out how they're all crapping all over him now. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, one issue Trump has had is that he's had a hard time keeping together a legal team. 
And this mm -hmm. next clip, I think, can help explain why. Uh, <laughs> let's go to this video. <laughs> I don't want to dwell on it, but according to the indictment, you were here at Bedminster on July 21st, 2021, after you're no longer president, and you were recorded saying that you had a document detailing a plan of attack on another country that was prepared by the U.S. military for you when you were president, the Iran attack plan. You remember that? Ready? You were recording. It wasn't a document. Okay. I had lots of paper. I had copies of newspaper articles. I had copies of magazines. I know. This I is specifically a quote. You're quoted and, on the recording no, saying the document was secret, adding that you could have declassified it while you were president, but, quote, now I can't. You know this is still secret, highly confidential. And the indictment cites the recording and the testimony from people in the room saying you showed it to people there that day. So you say on this on sure. tape. It says just the opposite. That you can't and, declassify. And so why have it? What I questions. said, when I said that I couldn't declassify it now, that's because I wasn't president. I I never made any bones about that. When I'm not president, I can't declassify. And that's what you said. You didn't I said declassify. That. I said no, no. I said I couldn't. I could have but that wasn't a document, it. Brett. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. I'm just saying what the indictment says. Well, they, the recording uh, people, and the look, people in the room who these testified. These people are very dishonest people. They're thugs. They're thugs. If you look at what they've done to other people, what they've done to, and overturned in the U.S. Supreme Court. These are thugs. These the are suggestion was people. that you wanted this as evidence that the military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, had preemptively sent you plans for a possible attack on Iran and that you didn't order that to happen. That's the suggestion. I never ordered it to happen, no. But no. that's why you wanted the document. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a document from Milley. Milley, frankly, was incompetent. The last one I'd want to attack with as my leader would be Milley. That I can tell you. All right, but last I think you thing know on this. this. I mean, wow. Like, <laughs> okay, now you play his lawyer. He comes out of that interview and you're like, what's your legal advice <laughs> for him? Well, I think he did the first thing you want your defendant to do, which is openly discuss your your innocence <laughs> uh, in rather undisciplined yeah. ways and make and, things and up. Make up your defense on false. the spot. Yeah, make it up yeah. on the spot. Say things that are verifiably false. Yeah, I mean that's what else could you ask for in the defendant? <laughs> <laughs> I, really I look, crazy. look. We all know that a bunch of paper is not a document. Yeah. I mean that's like everyone <laughs> knows that it's a bunch of paper. Like yeah, look, like I, if it's it's a bunch of paper. Look, if it were a notepad, would you call that a document yet? No, like, is it a document no. until you've written on it? Uh, um, and also, I like that uh, he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like clearly on the spot, he thinks up, no, no, no. What I was saying was, I. I obviously declassified this while I was president, but had I not, now I wouldn't be able to. Like, <laughs> that's that's like his completely made up, like, here's what I meant. And then by the end of the question, Trump's like, no, I never read a single document given to me by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff <laughs> because he was so incompetent, I never received anything from him. Like, that is... That feels like the kind of thing that you might end up bringing up in court to impeach his credibility. Like, because I, I bet he saw some documents from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's like, he's the last guy I'd want to go attack another country with. I'm like, what kind of, it's such a strange way to word that. Uh, it's amazing. It's well, okay. uh, amazing. Well, that wasn't the only legal 
discussion they had. Uh, they talked about a pardon or a clemency, granting of clemency to this woman named Alice Johnson, who was convicted in 1996 for involvement in cocaine trafficking. Um, Bear had to do a little bit of educating of Trump. Uh, let's go to this well, clip. Can I say, oh, before yeah, we yeah, even play this, what I love yeah. about this is it appears to me that Trump brought this up himself. Yes. Like un yeah. unprompted. And Bear was ready with this educating of him. So I know it's it, weird. I mean, walk him into this. <laughs> this is the weirdest. Uh, the, I don't. I don't know. Like honestly, I don't. Ha I don't know. I can only assume Brett Bear is another like, you know, Fox News automaton who's been saying crazy things up until now. But he, just the first time I've ever. I mean, he definitely has it in him to be a real journalist. He well, he's know? a guy who seems to me like he because uh, you know you don't he doesn't have an opinion show. I don't recall him being like a regular on like Fox and Friends in the morning. He seems to be a facilitator of he BS. He reads the and, prompter. Uh, yeah, he reads yeah, the prompter. Yeah, a facilitator of the BS more so than a creator of the BS. Right. In yeah, in the there. ranking, in the ranking of these people. Okay, right. let's go to this clip. I focused on nonviolent crime. As an example, a woman who you know very well was in jail. She had 24 more years to serve. She served for 22 years. She had 20 Alex Johnson. Alice. She was in the Super Bowl. High quality. Oh, yeah. I said, how many years? And she was on a telephone call, and they were involved in selling marijuana, mostly marijuana. And she got, like, 50 years in jail. But she'd be killed under your plan. Huh? As a drug dealer. No, no, no. Under my... Oh, under that? Uh, it would depend on the severity. <laughs> it would You're depend on the severity. <laughs> She's technically a former drug dealer. She... The... She had multi-million dollar cocaine ring. Any said, drug dealer. Look. So even it, Alice Johnson in that ad. She can't do it, okay? By the way, if that was there, no, she wouldn't be killed. It would start as of now, so you wouldn't go to the no, past. No, but your policy. No, 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 no. Starting now, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I love it when he goes... His he's face, like, I've never seen Trump's face look like that before. Like yeah, the, the, he was the like, way his oh. eyes were like, he was like, what, my policy? He's like, what? And then he's like, oh, yeah, I did say I was going to execute drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and then he goes, <laughs> and, then, and, and then he goes, he goes, it would depend on the severity. Like, he's what I love about it, that. He's just making up a new policy on Totally the making it up, but also like. But it's involving executing people. It's not even like, hey, just, you know what the sort of like the, the, you know, the fuel economy standard should be. It's like, oh, you know, maybe in this vehicle. You're like. <laughs> All right, maybe I wouldn't execute her. You're yeah, right. Like, like he I just like got her. done. Yeah. There's the there's the freeze frame of his of his thank good job, Brett. But like, yeah, he just got done like as passionate as Trump can get and and displaying the maximum amount of like human humanity and emotion that Trump is able to mimic while talking about Alice Johnson, right? He just got done talking, humanizing this woman and talking about how unfair it is. And then this new fact is introduced that she would have possibly been executed and Trump just really just tosses off like, it would depend on the severity. Like, basically like, yeah, we might've killed her. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, it's um, remarkable. Bro. I could watch this all day. I think, okay, so that's, that's Trump. We're just checking in, in Trump world. Well, can, yeah. let's talk for a second about you. Like you raised what is happening at Fox. I mean, one scenario is Brett Bear is just like I'm Brett Bear. I'm gonna be like maybe he's replacing Chris Wallace or Shep Smith as the guy who like no, I'm gonna try and do real stuff here. Maybe yeah. But I also think that there's a reason that 
you know, this this interview went into day two. Like in the old days, if day one is rough, Trump can call and Bear can get some guidance from corporate and day two goes very differently, right? So yeah. why doesn't that happen? And I think the reason that doesn't happen is because Fox News is the Republican Party establishment and the Republican Party establishment would very much like to rid itself of Trump. And yeah. and so I, I think we're going to see more of this, you know? Yeah. Another, you know, you know, it could also be that they have finally realized that the new media ecosystem is going to birth a million super duper right wing extremist groups, and that maybe their best pivot is like Republican, but not Infowars Republican, you know? Right. And like maybe that's their new lane is like, hey, like we could be that conservative news network. That is like that grass tops, like whatever. I don't know, but it'll be interesting. Like, I think it's it's a fascinating change. Like, I certainly don't have a lot of like, you know, uh, faith in the people over there. But obviously, the lawsuit is relevant. The changing of the hands to the new son, who by all estimation is also very right wing. But like, I just it it is noticeable the difference over the past few weeks. Look, if you were going to build an audience around the people who are like, I don't like Trump, but I vote Republican, like the people who are like, I voted Republican or I voted for Trump. I, I don't like Trump, but I voted for Trump. That's not enough to win you an election, but it is it's certainly a big enough audience for you to continue to make billions of dollars as a cable news network. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, OK, let's talk about this Hunter Biden um guilty plea. So he he pled guilty to misdemeanor tax charges and will likely avoid prison time. I think it involved um unreported $30,000 in taxes and uh failing to disclose on a, a form to get a firearm that he was using drugs. And the this is a this is an investigation that was being conducted by David Weiss, who was the Trump appointed US attorney for Delaware. And I think what's notable here, Jason, is this was a guy who Biden kept on mm -hmm. to investigate his own son, a guy who was appointed by Trump. Biden stayed out of the investigation. Garland stayed out of the investigation. And Biden hasn't attacked this U.S. attorney. He's accepted these charges. I would say it's a notable difference to how the previous president would have handled such a thing. Uh, yes. And I, I mean, the dude... The previous president was firing FBI directors, right? Right, like who, by the way, are appointed to like terms, if I recall correctly. Right, um, and so, so he was like intervening in these terms, and you know, and and for those who don't know, U.S. attorneys are not—they're not appointed that way. Like when when are, they're like ambassadors, when a new president comes in, it is absolutely customary for uh, that president to get to a point a new U.S. attorney to every U.S. attorney district, uh, every federal, like, uh, every district in the country, right? So it would not have, I mean, maybe people would have said something, but it would have been following the customary rules for Biden to appoint a new U.S. attorney in Delaware, just like he did in pretty much everywhere else. So it's like Biden had to, it's like he had to take an action to, you know, he had to go against what the norm is to leave a Trump appointed U.S. attorney in there in his home state in the place because it's like, let's be real. It ain't like 
there's not hundreds of people who were thinking when Biden became president that they they were about to be the U.S. attorney, right? Like lots of lawyers who Biden has had close ties to for many, many years. So it's not just that he could have appointed like a loyal U.S. attorney. He could have appointed a U.S. attorney from his home state who would have been like a friend of the family and it would have been like following the way things are usually done. And instead right. he left in somebody who was appointed by Trump to investigate and prosecute his own son. It's this three-dimensional chess in the Biden dictatorship. <laughs> yes, like, we clearly. just can't see it, you know? You can't see these moves, but he's onto something here. Uh, but okay, uh, so and when you think about this, here's what you need to do with your family. You need to remind your family members who are independents or right-leaning people of what we just said, which is that this, like, as tragic as the situation is, demonstrates yet again that Biden is not the dictator people on the right are trying to make him out to be. He's, you contrast his behavior to what Trump has done every step of the way, and it's totally appropriate. The second thing is, after all these uh, you know, allegations, Burisma, China, the Biden family corruption, Joe Biden's involvement in his son's business practices, et cetera, this is what we get at the end of the process. It seems like this is what the charges are going to be. And so- mm -hmm. There should be some explaining going on on the right about, oh, yeah, whatever happened to all this conspiracy theorizing that you've been peddling? Like at the end of it, you have a $30,000 unreported tax charge and a firearm form. Like, come on. Like the guy was addicted to crack, right? Like, so it's like, this is what we get, right? And, and nobody would even, and by the way, and I'm not even saying this was inappropriate, but nobody other than Hunter Biden gets these charges, right? Like, it's not like they're going after the, the rent. Like, they found these because they mm -hmm. were looking at the president's son, right? I would encourage anybody who, you know, Hunter Biden has not done a lot of interviews. Um, and he, he did do one. He did one with Mark Marin on the WTF podcast. Like, I guess it's like two years ago now. And it's a, it's a wide ranging conversation. It's about an hour long. And, and it's, you know, Marin is a guy who's been sober for a couple of decades and, and, uh, you know, had, done the 12 steps because he because of struggles he had had with with drugs and so it's a really interesting conversation but if you if you take out your knowledge if you listen to the conversation you take away your knowledge that hunter biden is at the time of the interview the son of i think the i don't know if biden was running or if he was president already at the time of the interview but it's it's just two guys who have struggled with a drug addiction talking and that's that's who Hunter Biden is. Like, I, I've never met Hunter Biden, but like, from what I can tell, Hunter Biden is a guy who had a, a, a really bad drug addiction. And probably, I don't, you know, I think he's sober now, but like, I, I don't think that's a struggle that ever goes away. Right. Um, and on top of that, had the weight of, you know, being like the mascot, the anti mascot for the right, you know, on, on his shoulders. Right. And not to mention, uh, growing up with like a lot of trauma, right? Like, I mean, right. being in a being in a car accident where he lost his his mother and his sister, and, and then and then later losing his 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 uh, his brother to to cancer. Like, the dude's been through a lot, and like, I'm not saying like it excuses his behavior, but I'm saying like it's not that atypical of an American story or of, of a story right. of somebody who's been through a lot of trauma. And it's boy, they're having to do a lot of extra work to connect it to some kind of corruption. Uh, right. on, on Joe Biden's part. Right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really sad chapter. And I think like in the end, 
we were we were promised so much more. Like we were promised some grand conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Trump even tried to pressure the Ukrainian government <laughs> yeah. to bring char- to to you know trump up evidence here. Like that that's how far this has gone, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is what yeah. we get. Something that every listener to this podcast knows somebody who did not report something on their taxes. Like <laughs> yeah. you, there's a there's a hundred percent truth that you know somebody. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's right. I'm not saying they shouldn't prosecute people for not reporting things on their taxes, but every one of you knows somebody who's done that. Mm-hmm. That's what they got him on at this point. After all of that, the full weight of the right wing machine, this is what we get. And like I'll even say is it is it possible, given that it's a plea agreement, that there was stuff that they didn't charge as part of the plea agreement that was part of the deal of him? Yeah, it's entirely possible. But the likelihood that it was like international corruption, uh, you know, going up to the president. No, no, that's not possible. That was not part of it. It was other stuff that amounted to basically bad decisions people make when they're addicted to drugs as adults. Right. right? I, I think that's really what this case is about. Yeah. And one last thing here. Because people, the inevitable comparison to Kushner and to all the Trump kids inevitably is made. What's different here among many, many things, one of which is that he actually was held accountable for his behavior and those others Mm -hmm. have not been yet, is that most of those other, Kushner, Ivanka, Trump Jr. are all involved in, were involved in the administration and the political project of Donald Trump explicitly. Hunter Biden has been on the sidelines. You know, he, I, I don't even know, time. like, yeah, it's like, he's like a total non-actor in, in this larger political drama going on, whereas all these other grifter kids are very much squarely in the middle of Donald Trump's project. And so, mm-hmm. to me, are way more fair game. Have not been held accountable, but should be more fair game. If you look back at what most of Hunter Biden has tried to do professionally, like, y- yes, he sat on some boards and like, I, I'll be the first to admit, like, Probably should have he, been on. Yeah. yeah, did he get offered some boards because of his last name? Probably. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certain probably so, right? Um, yeah. But did he then, like, did his father then go and use it? No. Like, can, can his father do anything about the fact that people are, that his son accepts offers from things that, beca- like, you know, there are a lot of people in this country who get things because somebody's trying to connect with their father yeah, like or their a, mother, like right? a billion dollars from the saudis right like right with like a billion yeah. dollars from the saudis <laughs> you know? and like, but but like so there are those things and like i'm not i think it would be disingenuous to say that that doesn't like look a little shady right for but sure that, but that doesn't yeah. but that's a reflection on it can be a reflection on the desperation of someone with a drug habit, it can be a reflection on the bad decisions of somebody who who's you know got a substance problem. It can be a reflection on the character. I think that's fine of Hunter Biden. What it is not a reflection on when I mean Hunter Biden is fifty three years old. It is not a reflection on his father who has nothing to do with any of that. Right? right. Not at not at that age. And I mean, heck, they're trying to tell us every day how old Joe Biden is. Okay, so like yeah. at some point, you're you know, it's not like it's his son who's misbehaving in the first grade and you hold him accountable. That's not what this is. Um, and and to your point, there was not a moment where they were, where Joe Biden was like, you know what, let's make you part of the family business. Why don't you come be an advisor in my White House? Like yeah. that didn't happen. The story isn't the consistent. He's, he's, you're right. It's either he's like this senile old man who can't do anything and right. it's like weekend at Bernie's or he's this like mastermind of like a criminal conspiracy. It's almost like in their world, I forgot the name of the mafia, Don, 
who used to walk around in his pajamas in New York. Uh, and then he was <laughs> like know. secretly behind the scenes, like this ruthless guy, but he like put on this front cause he was trying to get some insanity plea or something. I guess that's <laughs> what they're trying to say behind this, which honestly would be quite, I, I almost hope that's the version, that's the version the right deserves. Uh, that's a is, great pitch for a weekly show. Is what that is. That's a, that'd be, that'd be, we should write that pilot. Well, okay. Well, we'll do that while we take a break. We'll listen to some sponsors and start sketching out this TV show. When we come back, we're going to talk about Justice Alito getting rather aggressive out there in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, uh, pushing back against some ethics allegations or unethics allegations. And then we're going to talk about some kids in Montana who are mounting a, a legal case that we should at least uh, pay some attention to. Uh, all of that and more when we come back. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it every single day. I have for years, well before they even sponsored this podcast. And I love it because it gets you a better gut health. It gives you a boost in energy. It helps your immune system. And in many ways, it's replaced so many of the pills I was taking for so many different things. You get just so much out of this drink, and it tastes awesome. And since I've been drinking this, I've noticed a major change in so much of my life and my energy. I actually drink it now instead of my first cup of coffee in the morning. And I give myself just a chance to just like naturally uh, gain my energy and focus. And so if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1. You get five free AG1 travel packs. That's what I've been using here on the road. And you get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. So go to drink ag one dot com slash majority that's drinkag1.com slash majority to check it out all right well okay we have now been paraded with a series of major ethical lapses from the supreme court we've been talking about it i think for years now and obviously we had the thomas harlan crow stuff we talked about uh, ProPublica, which continues to just write amazing stuff, uh, we're about to put out an article about Samuel Alito, uh, who traveled on a private jet um, with uh, Paul Singer, the uh, the hedge fund manager, and I think he owns the Mets. You would know this. Uh, he's a, a hedge fund manager and um, right wing figure, I guess. And the trip would have cost doesn't, 100- I think it's Cohen who owns the Mets. Right? Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, sorry. No, he no, has his own right. legal issues as I yeah. recall. So, um, and singer, um, yeah, I don't mean to disparage the Mets. I'll get some angry messages from, from Staten <laughs> Island. Uh, the, this was a trip on a private jet that would have cost a hundred thousand dollars one way if the justice had chartered himself. And after said trip, um, I think a couple of years later, Singer had uh, multiple cases over the years after that before the Supreme Court. Alito, Jason, he uh, he wasn't going to sit by and and let ProPublica write this article. <laughs> yes, he did what we call in the business. He got out in front of it, uh, <laughs> and he got out in front of it in a like an indignant kind of way it seems mm-hmm. like that seems to be his approach right it's he, like yeah he wrote an op-ed in the in the wall street journal before the ProPublica article came out and he defended himself and there's one part of this that i thought this defense that i thought i think deserves some some attention uh which is he said that the seat would have been empty otherwise <laughs> otherwise, otherwise vacant. Been, been vacant jason <laughs> 
What do you think of that argument? Well, I mean, it makes sense because I'm not sure any other Supreme Court justices were available uh, <laughs> to go. And so I think he's right. Like if you've got if you've got this nice perk, this nice uh, Benny, this benefit that you're going to give to someone of influence um, and, you know, one guy takes it, but the other guys and gals weren't available. I think he's right. I think it otherwise would have been. I think clearly this plane would have otherwise just been going there empty to this wonderful destination. <laughs> taking no one on it uh i mean what an amazing argument uh that's why he's one of our top lawyers ladies and gentlemen i guess well let's let's take this to its logical conclusion right like candidates for federal office we have we have requirements that they um disclose donations to their campaigns we also have limits on what people can donate but let's just say like yeah you're mayor pete you're campaigning through the country and you know, like um, George Soros is happens to be going to L.A. too, and you hop on that. You don't disclose right. that, right? You don't disclose that trip. That seems strange. Yes. Yeah. Like because, like, I mean, all jokes aside, obviously the point is not the trouble that Mr. Singer had to go to to yeah. have you get to this place. The point is that you got to go to this place and do this thing without spending a hundred thousand of your own dollars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would it, be the point. It, the fact that the Supreme Court continues to not have any ethics enforcement is beyond me. And Roberts, who you know gets all the credit in the world for being this even-handed guy who's like the centrist on the court, as people would say, and like the guy who cares about respectability, refused to testify in front of Congress about Supreme Court's ethics lapses. There seems to be one every day, and it's not. And then and Alito also claimed that he didn't know that Singer had business before the court. But he also claimed that it wouldn't have mattered either way. So it's not even mm -hmm. why he even made this argument is beyond me. But uh, ProPublica made clear that there was, and as did the, the Wall Street Journal, that um, there was plenty of evidence in the public record, many articles written about how Singer had a victory before the Supreme Court. So it's incumbent upon you, Alito, to know that um, when you accept money from billionaires. Uh, but this is why you disclose the gift in the first place, right? Because then the public can tell you that, right? So you you disclose, hey, mm -hmm. I don't think you should be allowed to accept that gift, but let's put that aside. Let's say you are allowed to accept it. Disclosing it means that when that case is being briefed before the Supreme Court, the many Supreme Court reporters can point out, hey, perhaps Alito should recuse himself from this because we found this thing from a couple years ago where he received a rather sizable expensive gift from somebody who has something to benefit from here. And we're not saying Alito is actually bought and sold, but this is the highest court in the land, you know, lifetime appointments. We should create the appearance of, we want to get rid of the appearance of impropriety. That's what all ethics rules are all about, really, is you assume like the absolute worst scenario and you ensure the public, hey, none of that's going on here. But I guess well, the Supreme and, Court is above the law. Well, yeah, and the whole idea here is like, well, but are we just supposed to uh, trust you 100% that you didn't know? It, like, Yeah, first of all, I don't, don't trust him. We, but even if you did, yeah. it's not the point, right? Like you, you do this because you're, you're in a, we've given you a lifetime appointment to make the most important legal decisions. And by the way, if you're a federal court judge or a state court judge, every one of them now has to do this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's crazy. So we're just like, that's the thing is like their version of this is that we should just 
assume that the Supreme Court justices are keeping track of who all is involved in all these cases, uh, which one, I don't think we want them doing. I don't think we want them figuring out who the investors are in the different companies. Like, I don't yeah, think- Yeah, by the we, way, he, he's he's not keeping track to his admission. Right. So it's like- and, and, and if it is his responsibility to do it, I don't think we want that. I don't think we want them trying to figure out who's on which side of each case. We want them only evaluating the legal part, which is- why it's so important to disclose this stuff so other people can do it for you. And I also think that him and, well, any, Alito and any other justice that this happens with now going forward is missing an enormous opportunity right now because the thing that happened with Clarence Thomas and was it Harlan Crow, is that the guy's mm -hmm. name? Was just a, a, a wipe the slate clean moment. I mean, it was just right. an opportunity for you to be like, you know what, um, I going forward, here and for Roberts to say going forward, here are going to be the rules because there's so many there's, there's a context for this in American life right now, like with with the way we are changing the way we use language, the way the way inclusion works, like there are now a lot of people who are having to say, yeah, you know, I like I was listening. You probably listened to it, too. We both listened to the rewatchables. I was listening to the one about um, uh uh, the in third Indiana Jones movie, and they were talking about how Spielberg looks back at Temple of Doom, which has a lot of stereotypes in it, and he's not particularly proud of it. But no one's trying to cancel Spielberg for that because Spielberg is saying, yeah, I don't, when I look back, I don't like that. I wouldn't do that in the future. So we're now at a, at a societal point where that's that has entered the conversation in a much more real way, that ability to create some sort of sense of like, okay, you're not going to be held responsible for the stuff that a lot of people weren't being held responsible for then, but you're expected to know now. that This is a moment where somebody like um, Alito, his response to this investigation by ProPublica could have been like, yes, this is why I now disclose all these sort of things. I didn't know this. I wasn't acting you know, in a way that's unethical, but I think we've learned a lot, and I think going forward, the best practice would be to disclose, yeah. period. Honestly, that's that's closer to what Thomas did. It is actually than, than yes. Alito. Alito is actually. I've long felt that Alito is the most petulant, untrustworthy person on the Supreme Court, and this is just more evidence of that. And Sheldon Whitehouse raised an interesting question, the senator from Rhode Island, that he's like, "Who placed this? Feels like a PR thing. Like, like right. Alito. Like, was there a PR firm that helped? Now, who paid for that? And was that was that was that it's a, a great freebie? question?" You know, like, are they mm -hmm. now, now what's really going on here is perks are really hard to dislodge. So right mm -hmm. now, a lot of these justices on the Supreme Court now it's part of their lifestyle. Right. They they easily could make more money if they left the Supreme Court. And obviously, we're a partner at a law firm or whatever. And a lot of them were partners at law firms before they took these jobs. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, I want to be like, I want to behave like a rich person, but I'm on a mm -hmm. government salary. And that's that's fundamentally what's going on here is they yes. do not want to give up their ability to like live a lavish lifestyle and and they think like every arrogant person who's ever you know like like the most arrogant people are like they're like we're smart and ethical enough to make our own calls and everybody else has to live by a different set of rules and by the way that's their job is to sit in judgment on everybody else but <laughs> god forbid we try to hold them to any semblance of a standard. Uh, and then it's like, you know, we're the pearl clutchers. Nobody's even saying you shouldn't be able to go on these weird, fancy retreats. I'm we're actually saying that, but I would at least right. at the minimum say disclose it, you know? Yeah, but but I mean, like, you know, that's the point. It's like that it should be disclosed and then you should you should recuse yourself. Like, yeah. and everybody should know about it so that you can, right. you know, because 
the the thing about this stuff is, and I don't think this is a big secret to anybody, is that when you live in this world, uh, and this is, I think, more naturally true for politicians who have to raise a lot of money uh, for elected officials than for Supreme, but your point is a good one, which is most of these people come from the law firm world and that kind of thing, is that you do get to know insanely wealthy people. Like you right. and I have both raised money for political causes and, and for other causes. And as part of that work, you you develop relationships. It's like part of the job. You build relationships that that sometimes become friendships with people yep. of really enormous wealth. And so like I'm not defending it. I but I am saying that like it is in many cases part of this world that you right. be, like I I have a friend who uh was is a good friend of mine um and was a friend of mine before he was a supporter but he sold this business became a, a very wealthy guy and I think like 3 years ago maybe um he lent us uh like we spent like 3 days at his home in Tahoe as a family like we did you know but I'm not an elected official I don't hold any you know but if I did obviously uh you know I would have to disclose that had I been like still a mm -hmm. secretary of state or something like that but I I do recognize that these these political relationships, these professional relationships become friendships and you do these things. I, I'm generally probably more accepting of that than a lot of other people, but I absolutely believe that if you're in a position of, of public trust, it has to be disclosed. It's pretty yeah. simple. Well, you know, we, we don't really have much hope that anything's going to happen here. It's just yet another, you know, these people are totally unaccountable and mm -hmm. I don't know what there is to do here. Uh, well, let's let's end on one bright story here, which is, in Montana, uh, I, I, I confess to not fully understanding the law here, but there are a group of kids suing Montana, um, and basically uh, Montana is defending their right uh, to permit fossil fuel projects, and the kids are arguing um, that we should be taking climate change into account. And it seems like a really novel case, Jason. I don't know if you're able to poke around in this as, as somebody who was a trial lawyer. Uh, it it it's now at trial so these kids are mm -hmm. and essentially you have this really interesting posture where the kids essentially have their own representation and then have the state on the stand defending their basically seems like rubber stamp permitting process in the state well and it has to do with with the state constitution right with the state constitution having because what people may not remember is that you know, Earth Day came out of, you know, this period in the 70s and 80s, back when, when, when Richard Nixon was establishing the EPA, when it was a bipartisan, very trendy thing to be pro-environment, right? Before it became as polarized as it is now, when a lot of people were writing language about the environment into a lot of different laws and documents and, and probably corporate policies and everything else, that, you know, the uh, Montana Constitution had this line uh, about... Um, a right to a clean and healthful environment, um, and like ahead of religion, ahead of speech, and that's what that's what these plaintiffs are, are seizing on, and they're using it to to assert that individual right, which is very interesting. Um, and so I think it'll be I think it'll be fascinating. You know, it'll be one thing to see how the trial court uh, goes here, but it'll be another to see how uh, like appellate courts are going to interpret the law on this and whether like. Because it is not the most specific of terms, right? Um, but it reminds me of there's lots of stuff that's in state constitutions that you can that actually become action oriented. Like, as you well know, working in the education world, there's a lot of states that periodically 
uh, have lawsuits about what they call adequacy clauses, I think is how it's put, right? Which is like, uh, and you might be able to explain it better than me, but it's that um, that there is a, a right to an adequate level of spending on education. And then there's oftentimes some sort of definition about the percentage of the budget, right? Yeah, it's really crazy. There was like a bunch of my classmates actually sued state of Connecticut while I was in law school on this. It's that is crazy and thorny and like wild and has taken years. Like that, what that one Connecticut case I think lasted up until very recently, um, mm-hmm. from when I was in law school. Uh, there, I think like the fact that you know, as Politico said, the mere fact that the trial is happening is the real news. This is their words, and they said state lawmakers have insulated regulators pretty well from it via the law they passed this spring, barring consideration of climate change and evaluating projects. So they passed a law. Saying you cannot consider climate change. So then the question is whether the law is constitutional. Yeah, that's what it, it seems. in the state, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I just wanted to shout them out, good way, because there's a lot of dark stuff in this episode today. So I just wanted to end mm-hmm. on a on a on a more positive note. Um, but okay, one for us. What's happening in your world out there? Well, before we even do oh, that, yeah. I have a, I have a grab an oar. Um, and and I was just gonna say like that example of the kids in Montana is like a perfect example of grab an oar. Like it's just like take take what you have and run with it and try and make a difference uh, i was just thinking for gravenor like I, I, you know ProPublica, which we keep shouting out on this show for their investigative journalism um you know is it's it's their tagline is investigative journalism in the public interest it is it is a nonprofit. you can go to ProPublica.org and you can donate um and i just thought for gravenor i would throw that out there since we keep shouting them out uh, that I would encourage people to to support that kind of journalism because clearly it is actually making a difference and holding some people accountable. But uh, but yeah, y- you go ahead. I always go first with the with the one for us. Oh, uh, I'm in Austin, Texas, and this city, man, it reminds me of Nashville. It's like every time I come here, it's it it just looks different. It's just rapidly changing, and a lot of people here, just like people in Nashville, which I was just back in Nashville a couple of weeks ago. They have like some complicated things to say about it, but man, is it an exciting city to be in. There is just so much energy and innovation here. Um, and I was just saying this yesterday, like the best looking people in all of America, like I'm sitting at this coffee shop and like there's like a gym next door to it. And honestly, everybody who walks out of it looks like an Olympic athlete. I'm like, this, <laughs> like, this place is like the healthiest place I've ever seen in my life. Like. Honestly, like, I need. I think they need to be testing everybody here for performance enhancing drugs. Like, I, th- I think there's something going on here. Like, it's conspiracy in, in the city of Austin. It's you know, it's pretty impressive that everybody uh, is that fit in a place where I've done the food truck tour in Austin. The food is um, good in this town, and it is. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I, I it be it would be hard for me to maintain a healthy lifestyle, like if I were working in downtown Austin, what is it, it Congress Street or whatever? I am literally on Congress Street right now. Yeah. And the it's it was over 100 degrees yesterday. And I'm going from here to Jackson, Mississippi, where I believe it's even hotter. Uh, yeah. And then I'm probably going to New Orleans back to New York. So I'm literally doing a tour like of the hottest places in America right now. So that's that's my well, life. Uh, have fun with that. Um, or my my one for my little update is uh, about uh, the refugee family, the Afghan family that um, uh, that I mean, you're very familiar with the story, obviously, and some of the audience is. I'm, the shortest truncated version is is that um, I got very involved in getting this family that I was connected to through my translator out 
uh, and they have like an incredible story in and of themselves. And that became a nonprofit that has gotten a lot of people out of Afghanistan. But they they were in Albania for 20 months after we got them out in September of 2021, waiting for the U.S. government to hopefully you know grant them refugee status to come into the United States. It finally happened about two and a half weeks ago, and they came here to Kansas City to be near family. And that family is the Kander family because they don't have anybody else in the United States. And it has been, I can't, I can't even begin to describe to you how meaningful and incredible the last few weeks have been, the last two and a half weeks. Um, they, they live uh, six minutes driving from our house. Um, and Sorry. they're in the, they're in these apartments and like, you know, Diana, who today is her birthday and um, Diana, as you know, happy birthday, to, Diana. She, I don't think listens anymore to the show that we, we make so many of these, but I will tell her you said that. Um, um, is she, what is she now? 40, Diana? If, uh, 42. It's her Jackie Robinson birthday. Wow. So she's six weeks younger than me. And, uh, and, you know, she came to the United States at the age of eight uh, from Ukraine as a refugee with her family, speaking no English, was resettled by the exact same Kansas City resettlement agency Unreal. that we've been working with. And, and so it's just been so cool. And, and you know, also this family of 14 uh, includes uh, three girls who are, who are that age um, that she was. And so to watch these little girls connect with her, uh, to watch these kids connect with, with our kids and, uh, and just to get to hang out. These are wonderful people. And, and we're spending a ton of time that we have dinner over there frequently. We all sit around on the floor and like where it's all very, both sides of it are like, we're all family now. Like we're, That's you incredible. know, it's how we all feel. And it has just been the most meaningful and enriching thing. And so cool to watch, like, you know, for, for two years, I obviously was the lead in our family, uh, in terms of getting them out of Afghanistan, getting them out of Albania. And now it's, they're here and I'm still very involved in, in helping them with a lot of stuff, but now it's like 75, 25 and 75% of it is Diana coordinating. Hey, they need a lamp in this room. Hey, uh, I don't think they have enough groceries can for I, this weekend. Like it's just been amazing. Can I ask you something about this related to your book? So, and feel free not to answer this, but no. the, you know, based on everything you wrote about in your book, about what you, you've been going through and, and had to overcome and with PTSD and everything from Afghanistan, does the fact that they're in Kansas City help you in your recovery or does it have the opposite or is it just neutral, you know? Um, I, well, look, here's how it helps. It helps in that, like, I, it's a great question. I ended up as you know, I think going back to the VA for an additional round of trauma therapy because of the experience of getting so involved with the evacuation efforts mm -hmm. and just the, what they call Schindler's List syndrome of like, there's people we couldn't get out, people who, mm -hmm. you know, I was corresponding with. And, and so having them here, I think is somewhat healing for that. Um, but I think if, if it's the way it relates to all that for me is like, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that, um, the way out of trauma is not redemption um, because like that's what the movies teach us. That's the top gun thing of like, Oh, you just go kill some of the bad guys and you get over goose's death. Yeah. Um, so I don't believe in that. But at the same time, um, given that a big part of like my, maybe not my initial trauma, but my survivor's guilt was about feeling like I had not done enough in Afghanistan and that kind of thing, like to have been actively involved in saving the lives of, of, of a lot of Afghans and then to get to, to get to watch these kids grow up and actually see mm -hmm. it. Uh, I, I may be totally independent of like what I went through in the past, but it's, 
but either way it's super meaningful and it's yeah. the best thing i've it's it's the best thing i've ever done and mm -hmm. so it's just like there was a moment um last week where uh we there was a like a free uh festival um at and it's just 14 of them so like when we all want to go somewhere together it's quite an undertaking, right? We have to get multiple vehicles, get some friends to help volunteer. And we all went down to the Kaufman Performing Arts Center in Kansas City for this Future Stages Festival. It was like musicians who were kids putting stuff on. And, and the Performing Arts Center in Kansas City is just this beautiful place that you could find in Sydney or, or New York or any, any of the world's greatest cities. And just, you know, I'm on one end of this long row in this theater uh, and Diana's on the other end, and in between us is our entire is True and Bella and our entire extended Afghan family, and seeing these kids <laughs> be in this beautiful space, and they've never seen anything like this, and like, you know, and I teared up because it's just like, I went uh, weeks trying, to, you know, knowing everything about the kids in this family and and the people in this family, and just you know desperately trying to get them out of harm's way while the Taliban was trying to find them, and then after that over a year trying to get them out of a country where they didn't speak the language and they didn't have the right to work and they didn't know whether they were gonna have to go back to Afghanistan or whatever to now like they live down the street and we see them all the time and and That's like crazy we have inside jokes with each other at this point and they're just part of our family it's truly surreal and it's it's just been an, uh, just a, a, a real privilege I mean not to mention the fact that like you know they keep thanking us but like it's a blessing to us like to be able to do that but also like my kids like, let's be real, like, my kids are growing up with a certain degree of privilege, right? And For sure. And to, I cannot imagine something better to grant them perspective than to, you know, end up with, like, little cousins or brothers and sisters or whatever informally they'll, they'll come to feel these kids are that they play with now who are refugees, who are starting with nothing uh, yeah. and live down the street. It's just... It's 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 wonderful for all of us, and it's making everybody's lives better and the entire extended family. And it's just so cool, and it's fun to be able to talk about. Well, congrats, man! I'm super happy for you. I can't wait to meet them when I come down there for the Bills' uh, inevitable victory this year. <laughs> <laughs> you well, I'm I'm priming them to care about that kind of thing. You know, we, yeah. I got we got the kids some home shirts, uh, and so yeah, you look. Will. It's only up for them here. I mean, what a lucky city to to you know. <laughs> My team is imploding. We're not going to talk about that, but we're everybody now. All last year, everybody was saying the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl. This year, everybody's like the Bills are done, which I actually prefer. I prefer that narrative. Yeah, you don't want the, you don't want the expectations. That's yeah. that's terrible. That's not how you yeah. like to watch your football. Yeah. Uh, remember to subscribe to Majority Fifty Four wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority Fifty Four and please leave a five star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. 